So glad to hear you say Habakkuk correctly this week. Good work, Jordan, on that. And uh, this is a big week because it is week 16 of uh, live streaming only. But, Lord willing, this is the last week of live streaming only because July 5th, next Sunday, we're going to return to in-person worship. We have our re-entry plan that's coming together, staff and volunteers are working really hard to get us to the place where uh, we're ready for next Sunday, where we're going to be offering services in person at 9 and 11 and live stream at 9 and 11. So that's a change. No longer live streaming at 10 a.m. We're going to go to those two times at 9 and 11 a.m. So you have two choices there, either to be here in person or to watch it online as you have been for the past 16 weeks. And so we're excited about this new stage. We know that this is only a temporary stage that there's still more changes to come. You continue to pray for uh, the team as they bring this all together. And there is a video coming out uh, this coming week that I know is going to give you all the details on that. So that's, um, that's something worth watching for on socials, in your inbox, and on our website. All right, we are going to be uh, in our uh, series, uh, Where is God? in the book of Habakkuk, and we are in chapter 2 uh, today. Um, and let me just, as we get going here, maybe just um, maybe this has happened to you in the midst of a hard season when, and I know this is hard to believe for some of you, but when you weren't quite getting it, you weren't, you weren't understanding what was going on, and maybe a good friend or a parent or a coworker took you aside and said, sit down, shut up, and listen. And way, well, you know, I think most of us, when that happens, like we don't fully appreciate it at the time, but then as time passes and we see how things roll out and we look at it in the rearview mirror, we recognize that the tough love was really necessary to set us straight, to set our thinking and our actions and our words straight. Well, in today's passage, the prophet, in essence, hears from the Lord and the Lord says to him, sit down, shut up, and listen. He says it this way, maybe a little kinder of verse 20, right at the very end, let all the earth keep silence before him. And the words aren't just directed at the prophet, they're certainly directed at him, but they're directed at all of us, the entire earth, to keep silence before the Lord. It's as if the Lord is saying at this at this moment, you've prayed, you've complained, you've lamented the state of affairs in your life and in the world. I've heard you, but now it's time for you to sit and listen and to watch what I'm going to do. And we would do well, of course, to give the Lord his hearing. Amen. We would do well to give the Lord his hearing, to listen to his plan and to see his work unfold before us. Because when the Lord is at work, when the Lord is at work, we need to be silent as he works. So let's read this passage. This is Habakkuk chapter 2, 6, uh, through to the end of the chapter, verse 20. I'm going to read this, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at what it means to be silent while the Lord is working. Habakkuk 2, 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? And all these are the nations that have been oppressed by Babylon, and him is Babylon. So just so we're understanding what we're reading here. Shall not all these 
Nations take up their taunt against Babylon with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and will, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, or its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, reading a passage like this, there's no doubt that it speaks into our day. And God, I pray that in these moments as we have your word open in front of us, that you would make us a discerner of the word of God, a discerner of the times that are in front of us, a discerner of the people that we interact with, and a discerner of our own hearts. God, that we'd be able to understand all of it. And God, that's only going to happen in these moments. Your word is only going to be able to be applied to our lives if your Holy Spirit intercedes in this, in this moment and brings the word of God alive to us so that we might understand exactly how to live it out. So, Father, do that work, a work that only you can do. We pray now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, here we are. Um, when the Lord is at work, when the Lord is at work, you see it in your notes, uh, be silent and then watch, watch him finally and fully deal with sin. I mean, humanity has proven, I, mean, I, I don't need to give uh, any examples of this, humanity has proven quite incapable of dealing with sin. In fact, we're far better at actually propagating sin than arresting it. The world is not getting better by our efforts. 
the exclusion of God, and this is what we see as Christians. We look at the culture around us. We look at the nations of the world, and we see them excluding God. And the exclusion of God from the equation is not, is not leading to some humanitarian and atheistic utopia, but it is actually the exclusion of God has actually increased our polarization and created even more conflict in the world because now there's no moral base. The first human beings, this, it started all the way in the garden. The first human beings chose sin. But we shouldn't be too hard on Adam and Eve. If it had been taught in Cheryl, we'd have done the same. If it had been Chad and Sandra, Rob and Tammy, or Dwayne and Hannah, they would have done the same. You'd all, you'd all, all those couples, every couple would have pulled an Adam and Eve would have chosen sin, we'd be in the same situation. This is a humanity problem. And so we needed God knowing that we can't fix our own problem, that we can't bring the solution to the table to eradicate sin and all the evil that it perpetuates in the world. We need God to intervene to deal with sin and the consequence of sin, which is death. Now, thankfully, God lovingly and graciously and mercifully provided a solution, provided his own son, Jesus Christ. And um, this verse says it as well as any in 1 John 2, 2. He provided Jesus Christ as the propitiation. That's what it says in most translations. But the NIV translates that to atoning sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, that word atonement meaning covering, Jesus Christ covered. He paid the price for our sins. You, you go into a restaurant, he said, let me cover that for you, friend. I want to buy your lunch, okay? I'm going to cover it. And Jesus Christ, in the most glorious gift ever given, covered the cost of all of our sins by shedding his own blood on the cross. And in that way, God fully dealt with sin. Please understand, sin is fully dealt with in each of our lives as we accept that by faith. Jesus Christ died for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That is to say that the, the offer of salvation, the offer of forgiveness, the offer of cleansing is for anyone. And if you haven't done that yet, if you haven't received it, you ought to. You're watching these messages, listening uh, to this preaching, and you're learning a lot about Jesus Christ, but maybe you've never taken the step of faith to say, I actually want the benefits of Jesus in my life. Because there's a huge difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. One is simply an understanding. It's cognitive. But knowing Jesus is experiential. And if you've not yet made that decision, make that decision to have Jesus Christ finally deal with the sin issue in your own life. The reality is, as we have so often acknowledged here, that while our sin has been fully dealt with, it has not been finally dealt with in that we're still here on planet Earth, broken. It's a broken place. 
And the events of the last four months have only accentuated that. And as for the Jews that Habakkuk is addressing, their immediate concern, of course, is Babylon. We have our own concerns today, but Babylon, which is going to overrun Judah and eventually herself be overrun by the nations as judgment from God, both of those things judgment from God, both of those in his sovereign plan. But what we see here now in this prophetic word that Habakkuk is delivering in these woes of chapter 2 What we see now in verse 6 is that many nations shall, notice verse 6, take up their taunt against Babylon with scoffing and riddles for him and then pronounce these five woes. We see woes throughout the Bible, in fact. A woe, um, according to one author, is, um, is, is grief, regret, and distress. Okay, grief, regret, and distress. So, you, so that expression, oh, woe is me. Oh, woe is me. Grief, regret, distress at what's happened in my life. But beyond that, when we see it in the scriptures, that it's not just that, but it's kind of like that being pinned on a person or on a people group because of the way they've been living their lives. They're going to say that because this is what a woe is in the Bible. It is a prophetic pronouncement and condemnation against how they've been living their lives. That's why they have the grief. That's why they have the regret. That's why they're in distress. The judgment of God has brought that down on them. And again, these woes are found throughout the prophetic literature in the Old Testament. And then Jesus actually spoke directly the majority of the woes. And we see those in the Gospels. So these are prophetic condemnations against the evil that we've all experienced in the world. But before we get to the woes, we need to set something else up here. The significance for us is great because while we're reading this ancient text about Babylon of old, this old empire that existed, that was, that is no more, we read this and we understand that Babylon has now become the name by which we describe the entire world system that we live in even to this day, and that Babylon being mentioned in the apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation specifically, Babylon mentioned there is still yet something future, how God is going to deal with Babylon, not the ancient empire, but the world system that we live in, the system that, that, that is all about these perverse patterns of behavior, the evil characteristics of this culture that we live in. In fact, Erwin Lutzer, who was longtime pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, wrote a book called The Church in Babylon. And in that, he said, we are called to be the church in the midst of rampant idolatry, violence, false religions, and willful spiritual blindness. We live in a sexualized culture bent on defiance of biblical authority. That's where the church lives today. And I don't think any of us would have any arguments that that's the world we live in. That we are the church seeking to be faithful to Jesus Christ while living in this corrupt Babylonian context. Well, taking this a little further, and I referenced the book of Revelation, we see... um, Babylon in the final defeat of the world system. In fact, just as a sampling of that in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, 
The apostle John records this, another angel, a second following, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So this is what we see in our world today. What Babylon is foisting on us and what the end will actually be. What, what Habakkuk and, and Judah were experiencing was in, in fact a precursor of what we're experiencing today and what we wait for in terms of the judgment of God. And so in, in that, these five woes also apply to our situation. So first of all, the first woe, verse 6, the pursuit of riches. Babylon was all about the wealth. But verse 6 says, partway through, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, and for how long, and loads himself with pledges. This is, this is the world today. Wealth at all costs. Riches as the end. And then the threat to that, because this is what they're all about, and you have to understand today that governments and, and corporations, they're all about the wealth. So here's the threat, verse 7. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. In other words, the tables are going to be turned on you, Babylon. Because, verse 8, the reason... You, Babylon, have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. Now, not everyone, but most of us in this church are wealthy by world standards. The Western world has certainly been prosperous through the last several centuries, and uh, much of that on the backs of other nations and peoples. And in an honest moment, if we think less globally and more individually or personally, we confess that we have this Babylonian value in our own hearts, that we've, we've bought into it, that we have a desire to have more money. I want more money in my savings. I want more investments. I, I want to drive a newer car. I'd like to live in a newer neighborhood. I'd like to have more. I'd like to live more comfortably. I'd like to enjoy more things. We have all bought into what we kind of like gently call, graciously call the consumer mindset. Oh yes, we have a consumer mindset. It's, it's the spirit of Babylon. It's not a consumer mindset. That sterilizes it of its power. We have bought into the Canadian version of the American dream of just having more than what we have right now. And our contentment, according to the world system, is based on what we have. And that's so far from the truth, Christian. You know it. It's the way of Babylon. It's not the way of Christ. Woe to those who are living that way. Here's a, here's a second one, the abuse of power, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. I'm going to put myself from a power perspective above everyone else so I'm per protected. 
I mean, some people are less interested in money and more interested in power over uh, lording it over people, having control or having fame. I don't know why we're so enamored by Hollywood stars who have the money and have the power and they set themselves up on a nest on high, protected from everyone else, and then from that nest, they presume to tell us how to live our lives. Why do we do that? Why do we care? Verse 10, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. And here's the condemnation. You forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. As God works now in this situation, the people who were oppressed, the people who were low down and not in the nest will cry cry out and respond even in a democracy. As good as we have it compared to other governments of the world, other government systems, there's still abuse of power in our democratic governments. There's still abuse of power in workplaces and in churches, in marriages and in families. There are imbalances and abuses and oppression by those tempted and given to having power. But God will see to their end. It too is counter to the gospel. Here's a a third one, the exploitation of people. You can see how all of these are related. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood, founds a city on iniquity. This speaks to social injustice in our world, to the shedding of blood of innocence in in warfare through slavery, uh, uh, ignoring the plight of of, of uh, displaced peoples and refugees, of not responding properly to matters of famine and plague. It speaks to any other way where a society is built on the backs of the oppressed. The racial issues we're dealing with in the 21st century have been centuries in the making. But could I take this woe and say it just in a different way? Woe to racists and supremacists who exploit people to maintain or enhance their own way of life. Verse 13, behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. The exploitation of people is counter to the gospel. God denounces the exploitation of those created in his image. And listen now, Christian, I'm talking specifically to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you call yourself a Christian and you are an unapologetic racist, then you have two options before you. Either you repent of that or you remove yourself from the church because what you believe is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the exploitation of people and it is a woe to you. Here's the fourth one. The embracing of immorality. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors, woe to Babylon who makes his neighbors drink 
and, and pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness, a euphemistic for engaging in sexual immorality. The, the combination here of impairment by alcohol or drugs or weed, if you don't think weed fits into either of those categories, anything that impairs. When you combine anything that impairs with sexual activity outside of what God ordains, that's what you have here. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Go ahead, live it up, indulge in your sin as much as you want. Carpe diem, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, the, the hedonist's motto. But then verse 16 continues, but remember the cup in the Lord's right hand, the cup of judgment, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory, sarcastic little comments, not glory at all. The cup of his judgment is expanded upon verse 17. You, you can't continue down the path of getting high, getting drunk, engaging in sexual activity outside of what God has ordained and expect anything other than judgment. I mean, the world has actually gotten to the place, and if I could borrow from one of Isaiah's woes, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, woe to those, this is the world we live in today, this is Babylon, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. That's the world we live in now, where we sin, but we don't call it sin anymore. We call it something else, it's just, it's just normal. So the norm for Babylon is to get drunk and get others drunk and to engage in sexual immorality, to gaze at their nakedness. The norm in our society, every sitcom pushes this. All the evening dramas that you watch, all the movies, Hollywood, this is their message through talk shows and through the news. This is what has been normalized for us. It's okay to watch porn. You can have sex with whomever you please. Marriage is an antiquated institution and gender is fluid. That's normal in Babylon. And ultimately, God will not allow this to continue. Go ahead, Babylon. Have your day. Engage in it as much as you want right now. Because the end is coming. It's not going to continue indefinitely. And as Revelation 14 said, you will be brought down. Here's the final woe. And then we can move on to something a little less woeful, the devotion to false gods. I mean, the gods of this age are different than the things that Habakkuk was thinking about and that Babylon was worshiping, at least the, the, what was a front for their gods. The gods we worship today are not in temples and they are not statues of deities. The gods of this age are what we're talking about here in these woes. In fact, the, they were the real gods of Babylon, Money, sex, and power are the primary deities that are worshipped in society today. 
success, fame, fulfillment. These are the deities that we flock to and are devoted to. We make idols out of relationships and, and work and leisure. These are the gods that we worship today. And we're okay with having multiples of these gods before us. But look what the nations say, verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image? A teacher of lies? I mean, how foolish is it to make your own God and then to bow down to this thing that you made and worship it as if it has some power to hear you and to help you? Verse 18 continues, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. It can't answer you. I mean, if success is my idol, that's the thing I'm pursuing. More than anything else, I'll set everything else aside in my life. I'll sacrifice friendships or my marriage. I'll pay money. I I won't be as devoted to the church. I won't have any leisure activities because I am singularly focused on being a success in life. That's the thing I want to be known for. If success is my idol, my God, I create it. I've set the terms of my worship. I achieve the results. I reach the heights. And then I bow down to it as if it's going to give me something in return. And every successful person in life will tell you there's such a letdown when you finally meet your God. When you're finally successful. Because you find out that's not the thing. It can't offer you anything. There's nothing there. Babylon's true God, in fact, was her own strength. That's what chapter 1, verse 11 said. They worshiped their own might. Look how awesome we are. Look at all the, the, the things that we've built here in Babylon. Look at, look at all the countries that we've conquered and all the wealth that we have. We're awesome. We worship our might. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. How ridiculous it is to worship a thing of my own creation. That's the way of Babylon. This is a great way to kind of wrap up the five woes here. Because now we can ask the question, what does the Lord really want for us? In other words, how could we avoid being Babylon? How could we avoid having these woes pronounced over us? And the verse I immediately ran to, a verse that is so uh, underrated for its beauty and simplicity, is, is James one twenty seven. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And, and underlying this verse, of course, James is writing to believers. He's writing to those who already have a relationship with Christ. And so we know we're talking to those who already have that faith relationship with him. And now he's describing for those believers and for us what our religion 
is going to look like? What is pure and undefiled religion before God? What's the thing we should be going after that's woe-free? Well, first of all, so we have this um, two-fold description of pure and undefiled religion before the Father. This is what it means to have the gospel and to be transformed by the gospel and to be living out the gospel. First, and this is, this is the horizontal aspect of it, and we'll get to the vertical, but the first, the horizontal aspect is, is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, it isn't just about orphans and widows. It's about any marginalized person, any vulnerable person, anybody who is uh, facing injustice, are you visiting them? Are you speaking out for them? Are you helping them? Are you engaged in alleviating the pain and the suffering of those who are on the margins, those who are vulnerable? That's the evidence that the gospel has really transformed you when you do that, when you have a ministry to those who are hurting. And then, and then secondly... It's to keep oneself unstained from the world, to live a life of personal holiness, to keep myself unstained from Babylon. Personal holiness means I'm striving to be like Jesus Christ. It's, it's pleading with the Holy Spirit to fill us and to do a deep work in our lives, to deal with sin that still remains. And see, and that's where we started this point, God dealing with sin in the world but until that day when he finally and fully deals with all of the sin in the world in Babylon, I want to be pursuing that in my own life. I want that to be the consuming desire of every follower of Christ who's listening to this message, who's part of this church family. I want to be holy even as he is holy. I want this for me. I want this for you. I want it for our church. I don't want any of these woes to be pronounced over us, over me, over you, over our church. And if you have something in your life right now that needs to be repented of, Christian, repent of it. Agree with God and turn from your way of thinking about it, Babylon's way of thinking of, of it, and turn to Christ. Let Christ take that all on himself and find the freedom and joy that comes from the pursuit of holy living. All right, that's, um, that's the woes. And um, praise God that we made it through that, amen? I'm sure you're glad that we made it through that. Just a little bit to go here. When the Lord is at work, be silent and watch him finally and fully deal with sin while establishing his glorious presence on the earth. As he concludes this section, Habakkuk writes here, verse 20, but the Lord, the Lord is in his holy temple. By the way, that's not about geography. You remember the woman at the well in John 4, she asked the question, should we be worshiping here or in Jerusalem? She was from Samaria. Jesus said, it's not about a location, okay? The time's coming when you're not going to worship here or in Jerusalem. Those that are going to worship me are going to worship in spirit and truth. It's not about geography. It's about our position with Christ. The Lord is in his holy temple. That's exactly where God should be. God is in the midst of his people. That's what this means. 
That's what the temple represented, God's very presence with his loved ones. The Apostle Paul really helps us out in understanding this when he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. And in chapter 3, twice he actually uses this expression about them being the temple of God. But in chapter 3, verse 16, he refers to the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit. That the presence of God, in a very real sense, is right in the midst of the church. This is why, I have to tell you, this is why I've been less anxious about the last 16 weeks where we've not been able to gather in this place. Because I'm telling you, church, you are no less the church. You are no less the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where God's presence resides. You are no less that because we happen to be doing this by live stream. How small it is to think that the church is only the church as it gathers in person. We have a God who's invisible. We are tied together in a mystical, miraculous way by the Lord. We are still the temple of the Holy Spirit. Even if we never meet again, we are. So that's chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. And then in chapter 6, verse 19, he's referring to us individual as individual believers being the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God. God's presence is with us. He's establishing his glory in us personally and among us as the church. But the day is coming, and this was said in the midst of the third woe in verse 14. You may have noticed that I skipped over it, but we're back to it now. Notice for the earth will be filled. The earth will be filled. Note that that's future. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and the waters cover the sea fully and finally. So that's coming. It's still coming. It's not here yet. And the challenge is exactly that, as we've already mentioned. We're not there yet. We're still on the timeline. We're still living out human history. It's still really imperfect. We're still waiting for the day. And Babylon is still having her way in the world. We're still beset by the pursuit of riches and the abuse of power and the exploitation of people and of immorality and of false gods. We're beset by all of it. The world around us is gripped by it. And here we are, the church, as Luther said. Here we are, the church, in the midst of Babylon. This small island of hope. Where we are imperfectly and haltingly pursuing holy living. And a mission to tell others about the safe refuge that we are seeking to be. We lament the deplorable state of this world and how far it has fallen. How far that it has drifted from God's perfect creation. We lament the effect on people we love. We lament the fact that we have to pick up the pieces of so many lives. We lament the disease, the addictions, the hate, the sorrows, the anger, the abuse. We lament all of it. And we strive in the face of it to live out the gospel as a church, but also as individual believers. How do we cultivate the presence of God in our church and in our lives personally? Well, it is in part to come back to what we said off the very top. 
It is in part about being silent before the Lord. This whole idea of being silent is so hard for us. Social media has given us this head-swelling notion that we all have a voice and that we all deserve to be heard. Far too many people are saying far too many things apart from knowing anything about those things. Democracy and freedom, which we cherish in this country, democracy and freedom have birthed far too many vocal critics, so, so many, far too many self-proclaimed experts. Personal opinion has been elevated far higher than it ever should be. And the wisdom of remaining quiet and saying nothing has been all but forgotten. Now listen, Christian, we must be different. We are not first citizens of these countries that afford us these rights. Christian, we have to temper the human right that we have to speak. We need to temper that with the divine counsel to at least occasionally keep silent. As one of our former pastors here used to say, and I think this is so helpful, and I've thought about this so much. John Miller used to say all the time, just because you think it doesn't mean you have to say it. And that's such a great message, even as we think about the Proverbs and all the encouragement we get from the Proverbs Listen to this, Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, man, that's social media. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Or how about Proverbs eleven twelve? Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed to be intelligent. Now, if it's important to think about these Proverbs, they're trying to help us on the horizontal plane with, with one another in these relationships. And if it's so important for us to keep silent before one another on these occasions, how much more important is it that we would be silent before the Lord. When the Lord is at work, be silent. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our God and Father, this is uh, once again a sobering word from the prophet. And it's so easy to see how it speaks right into the situation we're facing today. It gives us once again a sense that history just repeats, that we're just in another cycle of this. And there's so much to learn from those who have gone before. And there's so much to hear from you. God, as hard as it, it might be to try and quiet down our lives and to be able to hear your voice, I, I pray, God, that in these moments, that's exactly what's happened. That as we've had your word open, we've heard from you. And God, that you would do a deep work in each of our lives. We need this. 
We need to be the church that you want us to be. We need to be Christians that you want us to be. God, we need to reject, soundly reject, in no uncertain terms, God, the ways of Babylon, the ways of this world, and to live holy lives and to, if we're going to be vocal about anything, God, to be vocal about the injustices that are happening in this world and to live out the gospel in both of those ways. Thank you for hearing this prayer, God. Continue the work well past the ending of this live stream. And do this, God, all for your glory. Father, may the whole earth be filled with your presence and your glory. We pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.